Arabian Airlines flight is doing a series of stops on its way to Burbank, California. What caused this flight to crash in a canyon? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And I'm sick. Yeah. (laughs) I was sick. I am no longer sick. Miranda also was sick and is no longer sick. Yeah. It's so great. So, fun times. Right here. Fun times. Updates. We're about a week away. From leaving. From leaving. When you hear this, we'll already be on our trip, actually, in the second week of our trip. Thank God. So... (laughs) Hopefully it's going well. At least the sickness so is happening before we leave. So great. <laughs> so Miranda um, and Nick recorded a Miranda sode without me and broke the door. Hey, it was already breaking. Yeah, I just pulled it and it broke. It's not like I, pu- I like yanked it out of the thing. That's what it looks like happened. Yeah, that's not what happened. I mean, I witnessed it. She literally just pulled it. It got to the like point where it like stopped and it just fell. I yeah. leave for one episode. <laughs> Everything goes to chaos. Yeah, it is what it is. Utter chaos. That post episode was fun. If you want to listen to that, got to be a ten dollar. Yeah, actually, that, that post episode ended up being what longer. What happened? It ended up being longer than the episode. Yeah, it <laughs> what happened? We just ended up rambling, talking about random stuff. You're talking about the trip and oh. such, and which... then and then we got to the topic of World War Two. What and yes. the Stuff happening in Ukraine. It was like it. Yeah. I don't even know how we got Talked there. Talked about it all. <laughs> you were just downstairs, but you were like. Out of it, yeah. We're so out of it. No, I was passed out. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't think we have anything new for you guys. We're going to try to get merch and stuff out to our new patrons as soon as possible. It may not happen before we leave, just so you're aware. There's just so much to do. Yeah. Well, and we all got sick at the most inopportune time. Oh, totally. <laughs> like, to the point where next week you'll get to hear a different kind of episode because yes. of the sickness. Yes. So. Yes, you will. So, with that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering November 8404 Charlie, also known as Robin Airlines, flight 416W. We don't know what the airline code is, so that is not the title of this episode. It's just the tail number, because... Also, this flight number is kind of odd. We'll talk about that later. Thank you to our friend Jen for recommending this. She heard it on the Morbid podcast. Which we'll get into more of about why it was on the Morbid podcast later. That's the part Miranda's covering. Yeah, I'm covering stuff this week. (laughs) Spoiler, there aren't recommendations. Right. It's not going to be a super long episode. You've been warned. (laughs) That's okay. Next week's episode, it's going to be pretty long. Yeah, it's going to be pretty long. All right. This accident occurred, well, kind of (laughs) complicated. Started on 4-16, April 16th of 1952. Okay. The accident actually occurred on April 18th of 1952. What? We'll get into this. <laughs> okay, because here's why, right? Because sometimes, like, a flight starts the night before, and then it crashes right. the day, the next day, because it went overnight. Right. But, like, two days? Right. What? Well. Uh, listen. It kind of works like that, still. <laughs> what? This was... Okay, this, this is back in the 1950s when we can't make long flights, so we call one flight across the country a flight, even though it stops in like a bajillion places. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so okay. Okay. we'll get there. This is a an airplane actually we won't get to talk about very often, but 
is interesting, something we've never talked about before. It's a Curtis C46. This one was a very specific kind of C46. I think it was a it was a World War II used aircraft that became commercially used. If you want an image of what this looks like, think in your head. Picture a DC-3. Now take a helium tank and inflate it. Yeah. It's a really rounded It looks like a balloon. DC-3. It's a totally different manufacturer, totally different airplane, but it kind of resembles a DC-3 in a way that's been inflated. <laughs> okay, then. I'm going to show a picture to Miranda and she's going to <coughs> confirm or deny if this is the case. There's also a commercial version of this airplane that I think is called like the CW-20 or something like that. Yeah, it looks like it just got blown up a little bit. Yeah, it's like super <laughs> rounded and weird. Like there, there was like they took the pitot tube and it just blew a couple <laughs> rest of air in there. Yeah. So this is an old twin-engine piston airplane, tail dragger. But at the time, I mean, they were still relatively common. Mm -hmm. And to this day, there are still some in commercial use, actually in Alaska, as well as some in Canada, but primarily in Alaska with Buffalo Airways. So they're mostly cargo, and that's kind of how they stay. But it's cool that they're still flying and still in use. This was a flight from New York to Chicago to Kansas City to Phoenix to Burbank. Got it. It gets so much more complicated than that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that's how it had stayed. Captain for the flight, well, we'll talk about this, but the cap, the accident captain for this flight was Lewis Reed Powell. He was 46 years old at the time. He had 7,913 hours total, of which about 600 were on the C-46. The first officer was Charles Waldron. He was 37 years old at the time. He had 3,000 hours. And then he had 495 hours on the C-46. So neither one of them were like super experienced in the airplane, but moderate experience overall. They're not rookies. No, they're not rookies. The flight departed New York at 9.09 p.m. local time on 4.16. So mind you, it left pretty late in the evening. The flight made a scheduled stop in Chicago in the middle of the night before continuing on to Kansas City, arriving there at 4.08 a.m. Hmm local time, on 417. When the aircraft arrived at Kansas City, it was discovered that the aircraft had developed an oil leak in the right engine, requiring the engine oil cooler to be replaced. That only took ten and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, just take a little while. Yep, that took a solid amount of time. While at Kansas City, there was a crew change consisting of the captain and first officer that I mentioned, so the other crew, I don't have the clue who they were, not a clue. Never mentioned well, it. They, and they wouldn't because it's not pertinent to the right. accident flight. Didn't matter. So now they've got this new crew, the crew that I mentioned, plus another captain, John Traher, who had deadheaded from Chicago to Kansas City with the airplane, plus a hostess, Dolores Bradford. So it was a total crew change. All new. Everything. All new people. Yep. I should. Yep. Midway through the country, they swapped everybody. The flight time required to get to Burbank required the flight to have a three-man crew to switch out duties for part of the flight. So that's the reason there was a second captain. Mm. Because they were supposed to be switching duties here and there. Yeah. The flight finally departed Kansas City at 3.38 p.m. local time on a visual flight rule flight plan with the reserve captain, Traher, and the first officer, Waldron, as the flying crew. The flight made an unscheduled but precautionary stop at Wichita at 5 p.m. local time. So a little under an hour and a half later, they were in Wichita to check the oil consumption of the right engine, which was determined to be normal. The flight then departed Wichita at 5.34 p.m. local time, so about a half an hour later, on an instrument flight rules flight plan to Phoenix with the same flying crew. So it's still the reserve 
captain, and the first officer. Right. The flight continued normally till around Tacumacari, New Mexico, when the flight encountered some severe thunderstorms that they could not go around. Hmm. At that time, the flight turned back eastbound, landing in Amarillo, Texas. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> now I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't end there. At 8.14 p.m. local time, they landed in Amarillo. The reserve captain, Treher, then deplaned in Amarillo. At that point, he was like, I'm done. Goodbye. I've served my purpose. Bye-bye. Your turn. At 11.02 p.m. local time, the flight departed Amarillo with Captain Powell and First Officer Waldron as the flying crew. So this was only a few hours later, like three hours later, basically. They proceeded on an instrument flight rules flight plan to Phoenix. At 12.35 a.m., the flight reported being over Albuquerque, at which time they changed from an IFR flight plan to a defense VFR flight plan. This doesn't what really the f- does that what? Mean? This doesn't really exist anymore, but this was kind of something that like they had put in place for the military. It's kind of like a low flying thing. And mind you, the C forty six was a primarily military used aircraft for a long time. Okay, but this is a passenger flight. Yes, correct. But this is I mean, it's a form of VFR, but it's kind of like using some IFR like rules and regulations. It's okay. This weird crossover thingy they created mostly for the military and they were using it because it was still public use. I mean, it's on the airplane. All the stuff was on the airplane. You can use it. They were probably even trained for it. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, that doesn't really matter much. <laughs> they also reported as having an estimated arrival time into Phoenix around 1.20 a.m. local time. The flight arrived at Phoenix at 1.30 a.m. local time, so 10 minutes late, at which time three adult passengers and an infant deplaned. The flight was to continue on to Burbank with 26 passengers and three crew. The flight departed Phoenix at 2.43 a.m. local time on another defense VFR flight plan with a planned cruising altitude of 8,000 feet. At 3.13 a.m. local time, the flight requested weather information for Burbank and Los Angeles International, at which time they were informed that Burbank was reporting as closed due to visibility of one-eighth mile. Okay. Los Angeles International, on the other hand, was reporting ceilings of 700 feet overcast, visibility of two and a quarter mile with haze and smoke. The flight then advised the air traffic controller that they would file an instrument flight rules flight plan a little later on in the flight as they neared the area. Mind you... You can do that on the aircraft? Yes, you can. Well, sort of. Yes. <laughs> well, sort of. Even to this day, there are kind I know, of I know ways. you can today because we have the technology, but did they have the technology? Oh, yeah, sure, totally. I mean, they have charts. <laughs> and you say, we are here, we're going there, here's our plan. Okay. Huzzah. And they say, great, and here's what <laughs> else we're going to give you. And basically, that's that's it. So, so is it the bad visibility because of fire? No. no. Fog. It's just fog, yeah. Fog. Which is really common there to this day. I mean, it gets oh, visibility yeah. is awful Also known as the marine layer. Yes. Actually, I don't know. I mean, it's early in the morning. It's probably the marine layer. The marine layer usually peaks at 7 a.m. and dissipates at noon. Right. Or I think the term is burns off at noon. Yes. This could just be marine layer. It could just be general fog from who knows what their weather was before this. There is an ocean, as it yep. turns out. It turns out. Really common there to this day. So they said they were going to file this IFR flight plan a little bit later. Mind you, four minutes later, the flight reported being over the Riverside Range Station at 6,000 feet, at which time they did request the IFR approach to Los Angeles instead of Burbank. So now they're well, going to... Burbank was closed. Now they're going to the open airport. So now we've added... Three extra airports to this flight. <laughs> it's so great. Is it? 
So I don't great. know about that. They estimated being over Downey at 3.36 a.m. Downey is just another like reporting point along the way. It's a town and a station. At Los Angeles, the low-frequency radio range was not in operation, which was known by the flight crew. So this is one of the tools used at the airport, but it is a, a radio frequency. At 3.23 a.m., the air route traffic controller gave the flight instructions, quote, from present position to Downey radio beacon cruise at at least 500 on top, so at least 500 feet above the ground, descend visual flight rules and cross Downey and maintain 3,000. Contact Los Angeles approach control over La Habra. No delay expected, end quote. So just gave him a bunch of instructions on how to descend, how high to fly, descend VFR. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting to me because there's obviously weather around and gave them reporting points and such. The captain repeated back the clearance. 3.33 a.m. local time. This is now on the 18th, by the way. The flight contacted the Los Angeles approach control and reported that they were in the vicinity of La Habra and that they were having difficulty with their ADF or automatic direction finding equipment due to static and they would have to make a different type of approach. This is something that I think just because the equipment was much more common and in use, they were like just really used to using the ADF mm -hmm. for approaches. This These days, it's basically non-existent. The equipment is hardly usable. It's basically an AM radio. Useless in almost every form these days. It's basically a brick in the cockpit if you have one. Solid. That said, the approach controller then asked the flight if they had the equipment and the ability to pick up the outer marker using ILS equipment. Instrument landing system. Right. The captain reported that they did have the equipment and could probably use the ILS glide path to proceed from there on in. Let's do that. Seems like the better option to me. This was relatively new at the time, however, as well as not as necessarily accurate, although it was more accurate than ADF. The way that they used ILS, it was still very new. So there was still a lot of things in the works. These days, it's super accurate. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight for a straight-in ILS approach from the outer marker. The air traffic controller also provided the current weather at LA and once more advised the flight crew that the low-frequency range was inoperative due to maintenance. Over the next few minutes, the air traffic controller kept watching for the aircraft to appear on their radar scope, but did not see it show up. Hmm. So it didn't come into range of the airport. 3.37 a.m., so only four minutes later from our last point, the air traffic controller began making calls over the radio to try to contact the flight, but received no response. Uh-oh. None. Uh-oh. The airplane never made it to the airport, and it was a mystery where the aircraft had gone for several hours, actually. It wasn't until later that morning at 10 a.m. local time when a Mr. Hayden Jones, a rancher in Puente, California, came across the wrecked airplane near the top of a grassy knoll at 980 feet above sea level in the Turnbull Canyon, just two miles east of Whittier, California, and 22 and a half miles east of the Los Angeles International Airport. What was found was that the airplane was completely destroyed, apart from the small tail section, which, if you really want, you can go find pictures of that, but there's not really much to look at. Unfortunately, all 29 on board had perished in the crash. That was evident. It had slammed into the hill. Yeah. And it had actually slammed into the hill after having impacted once going over the ravine and then Correct. its final impact. Yeah. It had hit one side of the ravine, gone over, and then impacted the hill hard. So, this investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board. Or the CAB. The CAB. <laughs> 
who was the predecessor for today's NTSB, in case you didn't know. In case you hadn't already guessed, the aircraft was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with, black boxes because they hadn't been invented yet. Correct. If you want to know more about their invention, refer to, I think it's episode 35. It's the... The cursed episode. The trans-Australia episode. Yes, the cursed episode. (laughs) Investigators determined that the engines had been operating properly at the time of impact, which from experience on on this podcast usually is indicated by the level of foliage ingestion by the engines. That's so great. It's pretty easy in a prop airplane, too, because if the blades are curved in any way, shape, or form, that means that they struck while spinning. Correct. They were also able to determine that the landing gear was extended and the flaps were retracted. Now, at first glance, the flaps being retracted might be of concern to us modern-day aviation safety enthusiasts, but aircraft like that flew so slow anyway that they didn't really need flaps until they were on short-short final. So, flying without flaps at this point in the approach was pretty normal. The damage to the cockpit was so extensive that investigators were unable to gather any readings from the instruments that oftentimes you can from steam gauge instruments. Normally, those gauges will leave an imprint on the glass of what they read at the time of impact, giving a snapshot of the condition of flight at the time. But that's hard when the glass itself is destroyed along with the rest of the cockpit. Yeah. Pretty bad. Investigators determined from the condition of the engines and control surfaces, as well as the maintenance record for the aircraft, that there was not a structural or mechanical failure. Great. The airplane was fine. Pilot error. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Next, investigators looked for the manifests and the weight and balance records to determine if that may have been a factor. The way this worked back in the day, in the absence of, you know, computers, was that this information was taken at the time of departure and then mailed to the operator headquarters. But that documentation never showed up for the Amarillo to Phoenix or Phoenix to Burbank legs of this journey. So great. Just never arrived. Don't know what happened. So all investigators had to go on was weight and balance and manifest documentation for the Kansas City to Wichita to Amarillo leg, which really they didn't take on anything additional at Wichita. So and then the fuel that was added in Phoenix and calculate the fuel burn and figure out where we are at this point. From these calculations, it was determined that the weight and balance of the aircraft were within the limitations of the aircraft. So that's not a factor either. Ta-da! The aircraft wreckage was about 2,600 feet north of the centerline for the ILS, however, which is suspicious. So investigators wondered if the instrument landing system was faulty. They deployed technicians to check it out, only to find that it was working just fine. Yay! Okay, pilot error, right? Are we going to get there anytime soon? (laughs) Sort of. Investigators next looked whether or not the aircraft was receiving the ILS signal properly. How would they be able to know that? Was the radio receiver working? How would they know that if the plane's completely trashed? Well, they found the receiver. And it was overhauled less than a month ago, so it was probably fine. It's like brand new. Mm. Next factor, which spoiler did prove to be of consequence, was the weather. You may have noticed that they had closed Burbank Airport because of weather at the time of the accident. Uh, It was a ceiling of 100 feet, sky obscured, and visibility of a quarter mile due to fog. Needless to say, that is terrible conditions for trying to land. Alternatively, LAX had a ceiling of 700 feet and visibility of two and a quarter miles. Much better. The stratus in the fog had been moving inland, obscuring the areas of Whittier and Puente. The top of the stratus was between 1,200 and 1,500 feet, meaning that the hills were very much obscured. But to the east of the hills, the fog cleared up and all was visible. Around the time of the crash, about 3.30 a.m., a farmer and his wife were awoken and got out of bed from the sound of a low-flying aircraft, which flew west out of sight but not out of hearing before turning around and heading back east until out of range of hearing. 
and the accident aircraft was the only known aircraft in the area. Their farmhouse was about 500 feet above sea level, so it can be assumed the aircraft at this point was flying in the fog and was not entirely clear of direction. So that's one theory. Next, investigators looked into the crew's records, and oh boy, do we have a lot to unpack, and this is where I issue a Miranda Rage warning. Uh-oh. Things just go so downhill from Miranda here. can't see my devious smile right now, but it, it exists. As usual, the co-pilot had a clean record and was properly certificated and had a proper medical certificate. You know, the works. Uh, what do you mean by as usual? <laughs> I mean, usu- The co-pilot's always that way? <laughs> no, I mean, like, usually the crew doesn't have this issue. Okay, true. But notice, I only said the co-pilot. The captain, on the other hand. Captain Lewis Reed Powell had been an active aviator and had accumulated 7,751 hours, including 1,500 hours in DC-3s, 1,900 in DC-4s, and 600 in C-46s before March 30th, 1951, when he had a heart attack. Uh Uh-oh. Yep. This heart attack was so severe that he was sent to the hospital in an ambulance on oxygen. He was taken home two weeks later, but put on bed rest for six weeks. He remained under medical care as an office patient until December. However, in September, a couple months earlier, he visited his CAA-designated medical examiner, Dr. Francis Herzog, for a pilot physical. And although no physical irregularities were found at the time of this examination, because he had had a heart attack, the examiner could not issue a medical certificate as it had to be elevated to the CAA regional medical officer. Captain Powell was told to get an electrocardiogram, a.k.a. ECG, a.k.a. EKG, depending on who you talk to, and a letter from his personal physician, for forwarding to the regional medical officer, Dr. Fred M. Ellis. Dr. Ellis then forwarded this case to the CAA Medical Standards Branch in D.C. and was told on October 23, 1951, quote, The case of Lewis Reed Powell, age 45, shows definite evidence of posterior myocardial infarct and definite history. I believe that any of these cases should be denied any class of certification, including Mr. Powell, end quote. So then why the was he flying? Let me get there. Dr. Ellis wrote to Dr. Herzog on November 14th, informing him of the decision that Mr. Powell could not be certificated for solo or pilot in command flying. However, he will be granted a class one certificate with the limitation valid for company check pilot duties. This was issued the day that Dr. Ellis sent this letter on November 14th. So what that means is that he can be a check pilot. Yes, but this isn't a check flight. I, I know. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't see where what, what happened. Why? Why? I'll get there. This is a slow burn story here. Mrs. Powell, Captain Powell's widow, testified that she was aware of this condition and that her husband wasn't telling other pilots because he had hoped to get this limitation removed, as was confirmed by both doctors who said he had tried to convince them numerous times to have it removed, but it wasn't. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So how, you may ask, did he end up being captain for Robin Airlines? Investigators had this same question. Captain Powell applied for a pilot position with them on December 22nd, 1951, and passed his equipment and rating check on the DC-3 the following day as administered by the Director of Operations and CAA-designated check pilot, C.A. Rector. Powell was hired on February 20th, 1952, and was checked on the C-46 three days later. He was assigned co-pilot and flew his first flight the next day, the 24th. In the time leading up to March 31st, he completed nine flights as co-pilot, four flights as co-captain, and two as reserve captain. On April 1st, he passed an equipment and rating check in the C-46 with a below-average grade of 75% and was assigned as captain. So great. In the time leading up to the accident, he had made nine flights as captain, almost all of them between Burbank and Oakland. Contrary to his limited medical certificate, these were all passenger-carrying flights. So, here's what I don't understand. Everything? Did Robin Air not check his certificate? Nope. 
The airline testified that they were not aware of any limitation on his medical certificate, though they had examined his pilot papers on more than one occasion. That's a fly. The check pilot for his C-46 equipment check on April 1st said that he also looked at this medical certificate and didn't notice any limitations, which he would have because those are unusual. That's all wildly bizarre to me. I don't know if there's a way he could have forged a new medical certificate. Or used an old one, maybe? FYI, the reason why things like this can't happen these days is because air carriers are required to keep those records. Like, anything the pilot has, they're supposed to have. Well, in case they die. Yeah, yeah, of course. And also, I mean, (laughs) it's how they plan crews, and that's how they know their qualifications and what they're able to do. Like, this is just... It's just 101 in scheduling and wiring. This is so insane. And it's insane to investigators, too. And we'll get to that in a little bit. On March 11th, a CAA aviation safety agent ran a ramp check in Amarillo on a flight where Powell was a pilot. He said that Powell wasn't carrying his required airman identification card. Oh, even better. He didn't even have his license on him. So he examined his medical certificate and noted no limitations. However, this is understandable if it was folded in something like a badge holder that was often used for medical certificates. The fold would obscure the limitations section. Mm. Wow. So did Captain Powell's medical condition contribute to the crash? That's the real question here. Regardless of the fact that he was hired, which was stupid and Robin The fact that he shouldn't have been flying, period. Did it actually affect the crash? The autopsy surgeon, this poor individual, reported he found that Powell had a badly damaged heart and a recent hemorrhage, but couldn't determine whether or not the captain was already dead before the crash. Oh, dear Jesus. Yeah. But the hemorrhage was very recent, at most hours before his death. What? Yep. This is why. Yeah. He said that he shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Investigators felt that if he had been having a heart attack, radio calls would have maybe reflected that, and they didn't. But there may be a reason for that. Why wouldn't the co-pilot have maybe noticed the state of his captain? Last on my list is the investigator's insight into this whole flight leading up to the crash, specifically how long it had been since leaving Kansas City. They arrived there at 2 in the morning on April 17th and did depart for 11 and a half hours. Quote, co-pilot Waldron's flight duty time was continuous from the time of departing Kansas City until the accident, approximately 14 hours later. This is why we have hours restrictions now. Yes. Uh, so did they then. Footnote. This time greatly exceeds the limitations prescribed under Part 42.48 of Civil Air Regulations. Captain Powell deadheaded from Kansas City to Amarillo, where he took over as pilot in command. Although his actual flight duty time totaled less than seven hours, more than 25 hours had elapsed between the time he and Waldron arrived at the Kansas City airport and the time of the accident. The amount of rest they might have had during the delay at Kansas City is not known. However, it is known that neither left the airport during that period, end quote. How did he sleep? They didn't. No idea. That's that. I mean, when you're that tired, 25 hours, you can't stay up that long without having real, real problems with fatigue. Yeah, this was all sorts of just way too long. You have a heart condition. Way too long. Well, and all the hours are just insane. I mean, most of this was flown through the middle of the night. And so most of this. The co pilot's probably exhausted and might not have noticed that, you know, the captain on his left is having a heart attack. And most critical points of flight, too, that they had to do for all the takeoffs and landings, almost all of them were at night. In the middle of the night. Uh, I just don't like any of this. (laughs) Investigators go on to surmise that the crew was flying low to try and get a visual approach. But this never should have been attempted given the weather conditions, especially when they had already been cleared for an ILS approach. Yeah. Well, clearly they're so good at following directions. So great. As a footnote, it was mentioned that, quote... At the time of this accident, Robin Airlines, Inc. was doing business as North Continent Airlines, although no authorization to change its name had been obtained by the Civil Aeronautics Board, end quote. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. Different quote. On March 21st, 1952, the administrator filed a complaint with the board requesting revocation of the irregular air carrier operating certificate held by Robin Airlines, Inc. On April 18th, 1952, after the subject accident, the administrator imposed an emergency suspension on that certificate. And on June 17th, 1952, the board continued the emergency suspension pending final decision in the revocation proceeding. End quote. Basically, this drove Robin Airlines out of existence. Almost immediately. Well, they're so great at doing their jobs, I don't understand why they would do that. It was mentioned on the Aviation Safety Network that they grounded everything because they had 40 violations the day after the crash. Oh my sweet Jesus. How were they even able to operate? It turns out they weren't. They had given themselves a separate name that didn't even exist, and then crashed an airplane, and all of that was because they basically didn't know how to function. So that's what I got. Okay, then we're going to take a brick break. We'll be back with some with some findings and some spooky Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, we're back. We're back. Let's do some findings. There were seven of these. Oh, okay. Yep. The CAB found that the air carrier was operating under air carrier operating certificate number 6272, reissued by the Civil Aeronautics Administration on December 18th, 1951, to Robin Airlines, Inc., which is important because you might note that that is Robin Airlines, not North Continental, which never existed and was never filed. So they found that the aircraft was properly certificated in an airworthy condition and loaded within its certificated gross weight. It carried ample fuel for continued flight at the time of the accident. Yeah, it didn't run out of fuel. I guess I should have mentioned that, too. It didn't run out of fuel. They found that Captain Lewis R. Powell served as command pilot on this flight and on previous ones, contrary to the limitation imposed by his medical certificate, although he was fully aware that this limitation restricted his flying activities to company check pilot duties only. Pretty straightforward. Can you define a check pilot real quick? Check pilot's the person who actually, like, signs off on pilots being able to fly a certain type of aircraft, have certain types of ratings, like be a captain. So it doesn't actually assign him any flying responsibilities on the airplane. It He's only assigns him to, time, yeah, to be able to check and to sign off. Yes. yes. To sign off on these qualifications to watch, basically. They found that co-pilot Charles K. Waldron was properly certificated for the flight involved, but during this flight exceeded the flight time limitations prescribed under Section 42.48 of the Civil Air Regulations, which by now is totally different because it is the Federal Aviation Regulations. So it's a whole different section, but it's way more strict even than it was then. So that's a whole new thing. They found that the flight was not conducted in accordance with the air route traffic control approach clearance in that it descended considerably lower than the minimum altitude prescribed between Riverside Range and Downey Fan Marker. We found that the flight was in clear weather until reaching the Puente Hills, which were clear on the east slope, but in fog to the west, which is where they ended up crashing. Right. And finally, they found that the weather conditions at Los Angeles International Airport were satisfactory for the instrument landing system approach for which the flight had been cleared, but were not satisfactory for a visual approach. And the probable cause forbade him as normal. 
The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the action of the pilot in voluntarily descending below the minimum altitude for which he was cleared and attempting an approach at an altitude too low to clear the terrain. Great. We have to assume that a few things happened there since they never brought it up. They never actually said that his heart attack, or heart hemorrhage, rather, caused the problem. Or contributed. But more than likely, something was wrong. That fatigue and... I, I don't know, just bad decision-making on the flight crew? The fact that they couldn't see very well. It seems like no one was really monitoring their altitude at all, either. Like, neither of them, which I realize this was before crew resource management. Yeah, 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 whatever. And but, it's also before CVRs, where they could definitively say, this is what happened. Right. right. But it seems like neither of them were looking at their altitude at all, or keeping track of it, at least. Right. They were also a little off course from the ILS, which, okay... Here nor that there. happens. I mean, sure, back then not... it happens. Yes, these days it wouldn't. But yes, that is here nor there. But they were way below where they needed to be. And hence they hit a hill and crashed. So we don't have any recommendations. But we got some spooky. Yeah. So again, we this this was discovered by Jen on the Morbid podcast. Why might it be on such a podcast? You might wonder. Well, and it was Morbid episode 216, I think. If you guys want to go, it's about Turnbull Canyon. Yes. And this is what I'm going to talk about, Turnbull Canyon. All of the stuff I have here is from the US ghostadventures.com. Just so everyone's aware, most of this stuff is semi-verbatim, so it's not me. I'm giving you the information from that website, <laughs> just so we're clear. Yeah. Please don't copyright us. Strike us. It's not, I'm, I promise, it's not my own stuff. So, a little bit about Turnbull Canyon. So, in the early Spanish colonial period, several Tagva... I think that's how you say that. Native Americans were supposedly put to death at Turnbull Canyon for rebelling against the Spanish and the Frisician Frères, which is a Christian denomination. Okay. At the nearby mission, San Gabriel, which is a church. Okay, so they were basically saying, no, we're not going to follow you. That's not what we do. And the Spanish went, okay, we're going to kill you. As is with most colonial things, unfortunately. Yes. The canyon was then nicknamed Hatuganga. Sorry, I'm totally, it's Native American, so I'm definitely butchering it. Or the place of darkness and death. Fantastic. The canyon is named after the Scottish immigrant Robert Turnbull. After buying the canyon from a Quaker businessman in the 1870s, he then sold it back to the Quakers for a profit in the 1880s. Soon after, though, he was murdered in town. Great. Yeah. And the Quakers named the canyon after him in his honor. So that's where the name came from. Okay, then. In the late 1890s to around November of 1900, oil exploration and drilling started in the canyon. Two oil men were chased out of the canyon by two very large cougars. Oh, lovely. (laughs) That's, That's the canyon rebelling. Since then, the canyon has developed a truly strange set of legends and stories, some of them being very fiction and some of them being very true. One of the most popular reports is that the canyon is haunted by Native American spirits, livid that their land has been stolen from them. The land was fought over for many years. I mean, yeah, like forever, seems like. The Gabrielino tribe people were the people of the area for a while, the, that tribe specifically. However, when the land got claimed by the United States after the Mexican-American War, workmen went into the canyon and they did not get along with the Native people, turns out. Yeah, it's not good. Also, the Spanish, when they were also part of this, would kill the tribesmen during colonial times 
to keep their women and children safe. That's also not good. That's also, like, not how this works. No. It's not how any of this works. <laughs> Given the tragic history of the canyon, and it is said that the spirits of the Gabrielinos haunt the canyon, angry and willing to chase anyone out who enters the canyon, the sound of yelling and the beating of war drums have been reported as heard in the canyon. Interesting. After the flight that we just talked about crashed in the canyon, people visiting the canyon report seeing billows of smoke, as well as the sounds of bombs going off. Oh, wow. Which can be assumed to be the sound of the tons of steel hitting the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. So that's great. There's a legend known as Hell's Gates. Great. From the canyon. There are stories of satanic worship, cult meetings, and skeletons of unbaptized babies. Wow. Reported. However, that is um, not okay. Yeah. <laughs> However, none of this has any actual proof behind it. So right. Take it with a grain of salt. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means there's no proof it happened. Right. And the next part, trigger warning, is very graphic and talks about murder. And you've Great. Been, you've been warned. <laughs> there's a story of Gloria Gaxilola. I think that's how you say her last name. She was shot in the head by two of her quote-unquote friends. Oh, Lord. In Turnbull Canyon. Actually, they were on Turnbull Canyon Road. Before she was accidentally dragged for four miles to Hacienda Heights. What? Basically, what happened is they shot her and tried to shove her out of the vehicle, and her foot got caught on the seatbelt, and they accidentally dragged her behind them as they drove away. Oh, my God. All three people were convicted and found. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Not the only murder, turns out. In 2009, Christine oh, no. Martinez was stabbed and slashed with needles and left to die in the area. No, no. That's great. And then, in March of 2011, another woman was found in the canyon's ravines. Parts of her body were missing. She is still a Jane Doe. They don't know who she is. Wow. This place is not a good place. Yeah, and that's all I have for you lot, for that. A lot of death. Way and... to cram, like, an entire podcast episode worth of crap in my <laughs> A lot of death in one little canyon, and that's just not cool. It's not... That's that's just... And, and to this day, this hill in this canyon is like hiking trails. Yep. It's surrounded by city on either side of the hills because this is, you know, Southern California. Yes. And the whole thing is just a giant city. But it's a hill in the middle of all of that that has trails and a small canyon. They call it a canyon. It's more like a ravine. A ravine. Yeah. A, 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 not even really a ravine. It's like a gully. Yeah. Like a gully. Exactly. That's probably the best word for it. Well, and then, so obviously there's theories that come out of it being haunted, right? Yes. How might that have caused a plane crash? Especially given what we just covered, did it start the heart attack? Right. I mean, I, take that take that as you will, right? Yeah. I'm sure Morbid covered more about it in their episode about it. But we wanted to be kind of pure about it. Yeah, we wanted to make sure you knew at least some of the actual history of the canyon that they crashed in. Like the airplane is a, a big part of that, but it's also one part. Yes. <laughs> of many. The murders are the thing that like, bleh. so bad so there you go there's your not halloween time spooky time i don't know something like that (laughs) something like that that was to fill in the space of the lack of recommendations couldn't really recommend anything given that um they didn't really know what happened well and the airline went defunct yep like right after this i'm surprised that there wasn't a recommendation regarding preventing 
pilots with limitations on their medical certificate from flying. From flying. I feel like if they were just actually doing their job and reading the the certificate, they would have found it. Like if he was showing it to them in a little thing, right? Well, for that, that one air, the one ramp check, sure. Well, yeah, but I, I my guess is is he probably tried to do that to hide the fact that there was a limitation a limitation on it. So I feel like someone might have just grabbed it, looked at it if it was folded and not unfolded it, which... But I feel like if you're airline operator HR, basically, you're going to unfold it and look for the limitations. They well, probably didn't have any of these things. Yeah. And we're talking about... The 1950s. An, an airline that also had 40 other violations yes. <laughs> on top of that. This so. is, I mean, yeah. And we're talking about... Like, literally just a period of time when airlines, there was a lot of very small airlines that were allowed to operate very cheap, very easily, because they just obtained a bunch of airplanes after the war. Yeah. They were just left over that could be transformed into passenger aircraft really easily, and then flown for cheap once they find an easy crew. So, sketchy airline hires sketchy pilot man. Sketchy pilot man. And it doesn't go well. Yeah, turns out. All right. Well, that was what Robin Air. Do we even know the flight number? Robin Airlines four one six W. But it's also November eight four zero four Charlie. That. So there you go. Little bit of Ibuki. Ibuki. And uh, yes. airline that it's not great. Pilot not great. And crash happened. Yep. Look at that. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Sorry, it's short. Thank you to all our patrons. You guys are amazing. Thanks to everyone for listening. We do appreciate it. Please have a safe and healthy week. We will catch you all next week. Keep your your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.